Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. While I have you here, I'm excited to tell you that it is that time again. Once a year, we open the doors to a special value-packed deal that is almost too good to believe. I'll wait for you here if you want to quickly hop on over to anchoredoutdoors.com to put your name down on our first to find out list. Simply look for the pop-up and then enter your email. You will hear from me this week about what is going on. While you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's happening in this episode. Drew Chacon has made a name for himself as one of the industry's top fly tires, and rightfully so. The author of 15 books and a stream of impressive patterns, Drew keeps his finger on innovation, all while continuously providing education and value to his followers and readers. In this episode of Anchored, Drew and I discuss putting scent on flies, UV materials, the infamous crab, and the ingenuity that goes behind being a true groundbreaker in the fly fishing industry today. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Brush Creek Ranch and their French Creek Sportsman's Club. Located on the historic Sanger Ranch, settled in the 1860s and known as the crown jewel of Wyoming's Platte River Valley, the long-held traditions of the outdoor sporting lifestyle continue to this day at French Creek Sportsman's Club. Born of generations of the finest sporting heritage, their ultra-secluded fly fishing and hunting paradise will far exceed any expectations. With friends or family, only 12 guests have exclusive access to the Sportsman's Club at any given time. I just got back from a trip there with a friend and our daughters, and we're already looking at next year's calendar to see when we can get back. Check them out at BrushCreekRanch.com. All 
I was born in uh, Elmira, New York. I was raised in Watkins Glen, um, New York, which was, you know, a few minutes outside of Elmira, but small town, middle of nowhere, upstate New York, and the Finger Lakes, the wine region, and there wasn't a whole lot to do but hunt and fish. It's funny, when you think of New York, most people... Uh, typically think of big cities and tall buildings, but it's not at all like that throughout the entire state, is it? Yeah, my wife uh, is a big fan of the city, and people are like, oh, great, you're going up to New York to see Drew's family? And she's always like, yeah, it's not like New York, New York. It's like New York, (laughs) you know, like the middle of nowhere. So, yeah, everybody assumes it's like Manhattan, and it's it's not. It's, It's way different. It's like going back in time to umbro shorts and the wide frame oakley's it's like how did i end up in the 80s again what happened (laughs) i think it was one of my favorite surprises about that state was going upstate and just seeing how wide and vast it was but do you live there now are you in new york now or did you move no i'm in i moved in 2003 to uh, fort myers florida and we spent two years in scottsdale a few years back for my wife's uh, job but other than that um, I've been here in Florida. Uh, what brought you there? I mean, I'm going to pick through your entire timeline, but what, what brought sure. you there? So at the time I was working for a mortgage uh, company and they needed a Florida president. So they sent me down, um, to get my licensure for mortgage title and real estate to start the conglomerate from, for them. And, um, we had a difference in opinions on what my salary was promised and what it was going to be. So I said, Hey, that's great. I flew back to uh, Florida. I was in, I was working for a, a firm in New Jersey and um, I just sent them their key in the mail and started my own companies. And from 2003 to 2007, I owned a mortgage title and real estate conglomerate and had, you know, probably 30 employees and, it was right in the heyday when the housing market in Florida was like a super boom. So I just kind of hit it right and came out of the the box swinging. So it worked out great. By 2007, things were starting to come down and the writing was on the wall. So I kind of told my employees there's a difference between quitting and quitting while you're ahead. And I'm done. I just here's some places you can go hang your shingles and go work for some of my friends. But my leases were up. Everything was kind of coming to an end. So I thought it was a good time to take the money and dip out and start a new chapter. So that was, I had no idea. So were you fishing at that time? Yeah. I mean, I've always been fishing. It's been my passion. Um, my whole life, actually I found a, uh, a business card that we had to make in like sixth grade shop class where you had to like lay the type and mine was a like hunting and fishing guide. That's what I wanted to be at that age. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a guide, but for, for as long as I can remember, pretty much all I wanted to do was fish and hunt. Yeah. And how did that all, you know, my grand, my, my grandfather was a game warden. So you know, and my father was big into hunting and fishing, and so was my other grandfather. So pretty much every Sunday, I was getting dragged along. My older brother, you know, doing some, depended on the season, whether it was we're going to go shoot ducks or deer or, 
you know, pull copper or go bass fish or something. It wasn't always necessarily like little trout streams in upstate New York. It was just everything, you know, if, if, if we were down, if we were going, I was in, you know, like we're doing red button or red bobbers and push buttons. Like, let's do it. Let's go, you know. Okay. Talk to me about the, the fly tying, because I will say, I mean, you've kind of branded yourself obviously as an author, but as a fly tire, I, I see you as an angler, but definitely as a fly tire first, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. Yeah. But how did that all start? Um, again, upstate New York, not a whole lot of stuff going on, especially in the frozen months, which is like eight of them. So I would always be, you know, inside trying to find something to entertain myself. And one day I was poking around in the basement, my father's like loading room where he had like all the shotguns and all the presses and dies and i found this like green it was a pistachio green sewing box and i opened it up and inside was like fur and feather and tinsel and a couple of books i actually have the book right here uh master fly tying guide by art fleck and in it was my mom's notes because my mom and dad got married at 19 and for something to do, they started taking fly tying classes. <laughs> so my my mom took all these handwritten notes on how to do it. Like, here's a red quill. And, you know, so I was kind of like poking through. It's kind of funny because there's like no pictures in these books. But like you can see how she, like she drew some and my dad drew some. And um, it's, it's even funnier is this book was from my grandmother to my father in 1975. So I found this and I started poking through that, all the materials and teaching myself how to tie. And I just got into it. Um, and I wasn't always like super diehard on saltwater or one specific type of fly. It was more like the creativity. I was like, oh, let's just put some of the chartreuse, you know, bucktail on this hook. And my dad showed me some stuff. Um, our, my first fly was a mosquito fly that he actually showed me. I have that too. It's hideous. It's like the, it's like a Florida size mosquito, like a size, I don't know, eight hook. Like, Oh my God, look at that thing. <laughs> like um, but yeah, yeah, that's it. Like something from the Amazon, but yeah, I caught a fish, um, on Easter Sunday, I remember um, my my grandfather had cancer and he was in bed. And it's kind of a circuitous story, but I was just getting into it. And I had tied my own fly and um, I went down on the dock at my grandmother's house because everyone was up there getting around for like dinner and everything. And I caught this landlocked salmon. Um, on the fly that I tied, which at the time was like, oh, my God. I mean, like, I don't know how old I was, like 11 or something. And um, I came up with this, like, bloody fish and dragged it through her house. And my grandfather, who wasn't speaking because he had, like, brain cancer, sat up. I mean, he didn't know anyone's name, but he was like, nice fish. And and no, he hadn't spoken a long time. And, like, everyone was kind of like, what what just happened, but it, it was enough to shock his system. And it was one of those core memories for me that was like branded. It was instantly galvanized in my brain that like, I want to do this. So I just kept doing it. Time flies. When I went to New Jersey, I tied stuff for stripers. When I was home, I was tying bass flies in the summer or 
just kind of finding things to create. And when I got to Florida in 2003, it just kind of exploded. That's when it became really fun for me. 2003. Okay. So that was when you were still doing the whole mortgage broking thing. Yep. So I, I was literally, I have pictures of me. I was a, I was a mortgage broker and I had a real estate company and a title insurance company. So I did all three at the time, you know, I was kind of the, the license holder. So I had my office in the back and when I got really annoyed or stressed out or just had enough, I would shut both doors and go back and tie flies in my office. So like I'd find, you know, like I'd, I'd just be in the middle of the day tying flies and taking my mind off things or just it, it'd always be there, a vice on my bench, you know, just doing stuff. And the more I tie, the more people be like, oh, that's really cool. Can you show me how to do that? And I was fishing with this uh, buddy of mine. Joe Mahler, who is an illustrator in the the fly fishing industry. And he said, man, you should really write an article. And I kind of laughed. I was like, oh my God, like barely graduated from college. Like I'm a terrible writer, you know, like, and he's like, no, no, like there's not a lot of people doing like how to saltwater flies. And I've never seen a fly like that. It was my disco shrimp. So he kind of dragged me kicking and screaming and said, I'll help edit it. And like, first let's do like an introduction paragraph and then explain how you're doing it. And we'll take some pictures. So that that's that article, the one that fly fishing um, on the wall behind me with Carter Andrews on the front hole in the tarp. And that was my first article I ever got published. So, and then after that, John uh, um, called me and said, Hey man, that's a great article. You think you could do another one? I was like, I guess, you know, like I'm really kind of shocked. Um, so I think I wrote one or two more articles for fly fishing and salt waters. And then I got a call from, um, the editor of Stackpole, Jay Nichols and said, Hey, uh, we saw these articles. Do you think you might want to do a book? And that's when it was really kind of like a jaw dropper for me, like do a book, like really? And he sent over a proposal like, hey, we need 14 chapters by this day and we'll review them and see. And if we like it, then we'll make you an offer and you, we'll do a book together. So that's what I did. We had just had Lucy. Um, Susan was up at night feeding Lucy and I was writing chapters of Feather Brain. And, um, you know, I guess the rest was history. They accepted that book and then I just kind of got the bug, no pun intended, but I was like, let's do another one. Let's do another one. They just started banging them out. So what year was that? The first one? Uh, 2012 it published. Okay. So the book came after you had left your full-time job. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I left in 2007 and I did some other stuff. I did consulting for years and I, you know, was a vice president of a bank for a while, decided I really hated that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I kind of, I worked for Gartner for six months. It was an, I, like a consulting firm, like a big um, selling information. That was awful. I remember uh, they, they brought me in for my kind of like annual like review and they're like, so how is it working here? You know, after owning your own companies for so long. And I said, well, 
if you fell in the pool with a cover on and slowly suffocated, but you could see the light, <laughs> that's how it feels. And they're like, so you want to quit or should we fire you? And I was like, you should probably fire me. <laughs> I mean, I just, I knew working for somebody else was never going to work again. Yeah. I just, I'd had enough. And I like, you know, I had run three companies and 30 employees and was, you know, burn the candle at both ends and crush it. And then they're like, okay, we're going to need you to a uh, cold call today, Drew. And uh, we're going to have this 25-year-old tw- boss on the phone with you, making sure you, you're doing your talk tracks. And I was like, you know what? I got to go. I don't think that's going to happen. Mic drop, suckers. I'm out. Don't need it. <laughs> so what about guiding then? Did you ever think about getting into guiding? Yeah. Um, I had a lot of really good friends that were guides and I watched how hard those guys grind. And it was like um, Groundhog's Day. It never ended. And whenever we just got on the boat and fished together, it's like friends are like, man, it just sucks the soul out of you. And like, you see all these guys, it's so nice to be on the boat with somebody who can actually cast. And like, you'd hear these stories. And I kept thinking like, I need to protect this, this thing I have that I love so much. Like, don't ever fall into that trap. And there's a lot of guys that are awesome at it and they're just built for it. And I knew I wasn't. So I just, I, I never, I never did it. A lot of people asked me if I would, and I did casting instruction for a long time. And I do fly tying classes. I mean, I did classes at Bass Pro with kids for years and I really enjoyed that. But the idea of putting the pressure on myself to catch other people fish I just, I couldn't, I couldn't see how I could make it work. So no go. I gotcha. So writing how-to articles on fly tying can be very tricky, especially if you're trying to be innovative and create something new. So what was your first big hit when it came to introducing something new to the market or to the industry? Well, I think, um, uh, the disco shrimp kind of piqued people's interest. It had like a sequin on it and a popper. Uh, yeah, um, it was a popper, but most poppers slide. So the sequin acts like a kickboard, like when you're pool with your kids, you know, like you can splash them and they can't go forward. So it made like a big splash and it, um, it also had a rattle. So that was kind of the first fly that checked the box for, oh, it's got a bunch of different features to it that in saltwater people weren't really doing. And then um, probably the other one was the Tuscan bunny. And that, uh, you know, just kind of punched me in the face when I was at dinner with my wife. I I find these snook and, you know, they like keep me up at night, these 40 inch snook that were cruising in the river. And, you know, if you got too close to them, they spooked. If you cast too far in front of them, the fly would sink to the bottom so like you, if you get, you know, closer and try to curve cast, you know, they see it in the air. So it was like this puzzle I couldn't seem to crack. I needed the fly to suspend and I, so I could cast it in front of them so they didn't feel the line come down or they didn't feel the fly because it was a big rabbit strip fly that I was throwing because it moved really well. Um, but it's splat. It's splat like a, like a fly swatter, you know? So I said, I got to find a way to to make this fly lighter, but still have the rabbit strip. But then how does it push water and suspend? So like most of them are like, Oh, we'll just spin deer hair. And but after a while, like it just gets kind of waterlogged and it sinks. So I was messing around with foam 
but like a foam popper head is too much. And then you're trying to incrementally shave off pieces of this popper head to a shape that you can replicate over and over again, which is near impossible. So I was thinking, how do I incrementally increase the buoyancy of a fly to match the weight of the hook so that I can make it neutrally buoyant, like a, like baffles on like a submarine, you know? So I was eating dinner at this Italian restaurant with my wife and she was talking and saying something and I was watching this guy put pasta through the pasta cutter and it was coming out in these little thin fettuccine strips and the light turned on like I just need to take sheet foam and run it through my pasta cutter like duh now I can take little strips of foam and if I want 12 or 13 or 14 now I can move it up and down and incrementally adjust where it rides in the water column and that's when I was like oh my god we gotta go Susan get get to check we, you know like so I, that was kind of one of those moments where I knew I kind of stumbled onto something that hadn't been done before. And most of the other time, like when you're innovative, it's just because you're trying to solve a problem. It, the, you know, the answer comes out. You're not trying to be innovative. It just happens. You know, like I don't know that I, too many of my flies are like really groundbreaking. You know, it's like we're, t- we're going to make a crab and everybody's crab you know, it look, looks very similar because we all have the same palette, you know, like here's what you can use for a shell or here's what you use for claws. So, you know, in fly tying it, I think Lefty said it best. There's only like one or two real innovative flies and everything else is just kind of a spin-off, a spin-off, a spin-off. But coming up with new materials helps, you know, when you invent your own. I'm, uh, I'm Googling your disco shrimp here just to have a look at it. Where is the sequin on it? Or have, have the commercial tires left that out? No, it's at the very base, right next to the eye of the hook. I have one somewhere. Um, if you look right here, there's two sequins right at the base of the fly underneath the foam. So if oh, it was like a foam popper, yeah. like a, like a gurgler. Oh. Um, I see them. There's two sequins that, one, it adds a little flash when you kind of tick it along the surface. But the the problem was how I got to that point is I was throwing these flies up underneath the bushes at mangrove snappers. You know, they're, they're like a, a swarm of them under there, but they'll only come, they'll only eat under the mangroves. If it comes out, they're like, uh, nope, we'll get eaten out there. So you have to figure out how you can make it move without sliding it too far. So I put the, the sequins there to slow down the strip. So when I stripped it, it would pop and it, it'd spray water, but it wouldn't really move because it had like its brakes on. So that was, that's why I put the sequins there. Yeah, that's very clever. I would never have noticed that because from the side, it's hard to see that. But it's basically instead of a bead or a, a pushing head or a popper head, you've got sequins. Yeah, it's like a stopper. It's, it's, it's the exact opposite. You know, I wanted it to not go anywhere. And the other thing is a lot of times like with a redfish or like a sea trout or something that's like a snook will come up and suck the whole thing in or a tarpon. You know, they have an upward facing morphology and a bucket mouth and they just kind of gulp and it, everything comes in with it. But like a, a redfish, they'll come up and kind of they push this bow wake with their giant forehead and they just everything just kind of skids out of the way. Right. Like a, a gurgler or a, a light popper. 
there's nothing to keep it there. So a lot of times they miss it because it, it just, it's too light and it slides. So the, the, the sequins helped uh, with that problem too. Yeah. I love it. Now get me, let's talk about crabs a little bit because that's always something that gets me very curious. I feel like every, <laughs> go ahead. Everybody hates crabs. <laughs> the thing is, I feel like everyone who really puts a lot of time into tying their flies is focused on trying to find the next best crab. Like if there's one thing that we're always yep. experimenting with on the boat, it's someone's crab. What is permit? Well, yeah, well, pro- problem. Maybe that's the problem. Is that it's almost always related they're to the, permit? But they're the devil. <laughs> they they don't yep. have mouths. Convince me otherwise. But so. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about Go your ahead. philosophy on crabs because I would love to know what your biggest quip or your biggest issue has been with crabs in the past. Well, you know, a lot of times people I I have these sitting on my desk and these are little lucite molds of all the different crabs so I can see true size and shape and you know, you, you really know proportionately what you're doing. You know, so like when I do the contraband, I'd say, okay, I need this fly to look like this from underneath, not just from the top, because everybody ties them from the top, right? Well, fish don't eat from the top most of the time, unless a crab's sitting on the bottom like a bonefish. So if you're tying permit flies, it's got to look like it from the bottom. So a lot of times I'll take pictures and I have hundreds of pictures of crabs different crabs for different areas and you know and they all do different things like a pass crab you know they kind of dab you know they got like one crab one little claw in and one out when they swim and they're on the surface and tarpon will eat those and they've got kind of a one you know purple appendages at the you know tips of their claws so a lot of it's you know the matching the hatch just like trout guys do but it's really more specific movements you know, I, I think that everybody forgets that you can make a fly look exactly like something on the bench, but when it gets in the water, if it doesn't do the same thing or act the same way or fall the, at the same speed, I you know, it just, fish know right away, especially really pressured fish or PhD fish like permit, you know, they're smart. They're, you know, just awful creatures anyways to start, you know, like you want to talk about frustration. You know, I've thrown every fly of the book at them and they're like, nah, 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 nah. you know, they just, they, they seem to just know, but I, I, once you once you crack the code or you, you think in your mind that you've cracked the code, you actually get one to eat. Then, then this like mania starts like, oh, maybe I've done something, you know, maybe I've stumbled onto something and it's, maybe it's this chenille or maybe it's the five thirty seconds and not three thirty. you know, it's just, it's that, that just hysteria of catching a permit and the crab seems to be the linchpin to that. <laughs> it's so funny because you're right. It's this total mania. And I, I can't tell if we all secretly love crabs because it definitely is what a lot of us spend our time going through in the fly box, or if we actually really hate them. I think they look cool, right? I mean, a half of half of it is like having the bling. Like when you roll up and like, what do yeah. you got in there? And you're like, what? <laughs> and you open the box, you're like, damn, what, what's that? <laughs> That's so know? true. Like, the, the, the crabs look so cool. You're like, oh, yeah, bonefish fly, some sort of a gotcha. Yep, clouser. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, everybody's seen that. But when you bang out something with like, 
big purple claws or like you use some sort of new rubber band for the legs or, you know, like the chenille, you know, all the strong arms and things like that. Now it's just all different materials for the claws, for the strong arms. I mean, that's what drives people nuts because they're like, oh, that, that might be the new thing, you know, like what, what, what do you have in there that I don't know about? Yeah, right. I gotcha. You had said that there are four or lefty said that there were four main flies. What do you think they are? Oh, um, I think if you go back for like the saltwater, I mean, obviously like your bait fish patterns, like your seducers and deceivers, um, you know, no one, no one really ties with feathers anymore. You know, we've got so many synthetics, but like mo- many of those old school patterns, like um, lefty and like Chico's like shrimp patterns and things like that, th- those guys that kind of pioneered the sport had like these very basic flies that were very similar to the materials they used in trout. They just kind of carried over. And um, I think that those were kind of like the bedrock for, for everything else, you know, maybe the first crab fly, you know, I, I don't know who, who got their arms around it, but obviously like the Bowers crab, I mean, everything for Belize is kind of like that round green tan Brown, you know, square leg looking thing. I mean, even, you know, a lot of the flies that I have in my box or the stuff that I've created is like, Hey, I love this fly. This is the, the one that was really productive, but here's, what I don't like about it. And I'm going to fix these couple of things. And now it's something different. You know, I just, I think that's where everything stems from. And even like, like lefty's deceiver i mean think of all the different streamer bait fish patterns that came from that do you tie any of the big carbon flies oh all the time yeah i i do a lot more of that stuff for fun i think i got a couple right here i was banging around with every once in a while i get sick of doing like the new stuff so i'll just go back and tie some of the classic like this is flips uh glades deceiver which is like lefties, but um, you use uh, the calf tail, which is a solid hair. So this fly will sink where the deer hair makes it suspend. But it's still nothing burger as far as weight. You can cast this thing a country mile with a six weight. Um, but, you know, it's a, a, I tie that. This is a one size one hook. You can catch tarpon on this. No problem. You know, but they're just classic. It's a little bit of tinsel around the body, you know, six feathers out the back and a couple of snips of the old calf tail. And I mean, now half the flies that we tie or that I tie, there's so many materials and steps. And I mean, it's a laborious process. People always ask me, how long does it take you to tie one of your flies? And it, you know, it just depends what we're doing. Bonefish flies a couple of minutes, but if someone wants you to do a crab, I mean, it's days. I mean, I'm doing production line crabs in the garage, and it's like phase one, lay out all the materials. That's four or five hours, let it dry. Phase two, do all the hook assemblies. You know, that might be 50 hook assemblies. You just tie in dumbbell eyes on a size one hook, and then you put those in a pile. And then, like, after that's dry, then you get yourself a foam board like this, set all the hooks in it, and glue the first phase. And once that's dry, a day later, then you paint them all again with the T-shirt paint on the belly. It's just, it's just, there's always something else that can be done to them. You can make them 
the point where like, okay, now I'm going to tip all the legs with neon pain or it, it goes, the, the road goes on forever. Are you selling it commercially now? <laughs> yeah, I, I um, have a bunch of patterns with Umqua and I've been commercially tying for over a decade. I don't do 5,000 flies a year anymore. Um, I'm becoming uh, rapidly, uh, uh, you know, rapidly becoming an old man here. My eyeballs like want to fall out of my head by like two o'clock if I sit down and tie. Um, I'm not at the stage where I'm going to, you know, admit that I need glasses yet, but I'm just saying maybe it would be easier if there was some sort of readers or something someday. <laughs> Asking for a friend. Do you, what sort of premium? <laughs> yeah. What premium do you charge for, to, for people to buy it from you versus Umqua? Um, I don't really know what Umqua charges, but there's not a whole lot that comes off my bench for less than 15 bucks. Um, you know, and most of the time I don't even tie, like you say, yeah, do you tie commercially? Yeah. But most of the time when I'm tying, I, I tie commercially for friends as gifts. So I've got some really amazing clients slash great friends now that I've been tying for years. And they're like, Hey, you know, can you do me a couple thousand bucks of fly, worth of flies for my kids for Christmas? And I'm like, no, no, I cannot. But, um, how about I give them each three for their stocking stuffers and I'll make them awesome. And they don't cost anything. It's on me. I, I would rather do that. I don't like, if you, if you're like, Hey, Drew, Will you tie me a trip for the Seychelles? I've got this amazing trip. I'd be like, yeah, sure. Here you go. And you'd say, how much do I owe you? And I'd be like, whatever. We'll figure it out. I'll meet you in Australia. Take me fishing. You know, like I just, at this stage of the game, I don't want a lot of personal orders. I got tennis games to be at and dance recitals and you know i just there's it takes too long and i hate letting people down when they're like listen i'm leaving on blah 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 and it's a trip of a lifetime and then their priority takes preference over your life and i just learned a few years back as my daughter got a little bit older that i can't do that anymore i remember all of those days and i do not miss them um what about your books how many books at this point have you written I just finished uh, book 15. 15? So, oh my um, gosh. Yeah. Um, this is my latest one. It dropped this week. Um, saltwater specialty flies. Um, I typically do species specific books and multiple. So like permit flies, then here's the sequel to that or snook flies. And maybe it's snook on the beach. And then these are all snook for like backwater or bonefish for abaco or bonefish for you know andros or location or species specific but i found that like on all these trips i've been on there's always this i don't know unsung species that's super fun to catch but no one talks about it like hey we're bone fishing but leave a 10 weight loaded with you know wire because there's these monster kudas over here and they're awesome you know but like no one ever says, oh, we're just going to do a book on cuda flies or, you know, when you're in Louisiana, there's sheep's head everywhere. We have them here in Florida and they're fun to catch. But like you don't spend a day trying to catch sheep's head. Usually you're like snook, tarpon, redfish, you know, the big, the big ones, bonefish, permit. So this book focuses on everything else. 
So it's kind of like, hey, this is a mutton snapper fly, and this is a sheep's head fly, and this is my favorite fly for trout, sea trout, or here's one on barracuda. It's it's everything else that could save a day, especially if you're a guide. You know, sometimes you just got to do or catch or target whatever the the sea gives you, right? Like, listen, I know you want to catch a tarpon today, April, but it ain't going to happen. You know, like over here, we can catch, you know, these until your arms fall off and we'll have a great day. But, you know, sometimes you got to convince people and having a rod loaded up with those. I mean, so many times I wish I would have had a cooter rod or a second rod. Like, oh, my God, there's a tailing mutton snapper. Like, how cool would it be to catch that? You know, so that's what this book is. It's everything else. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So in your books, are they all flies that you've created or do you ever utilize other people's flies? No, 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 not at all. So um, part of what I do is kind of chronicling the history of patterns. And I think that is more important than anything else. Um, I have had some amazing mentors and this is not like a, a sport where the cool guys are 60 or, you know, 80 year old dudes and plaid pants doing arts and crafts, you know, like that, that's not them. They just kind of get forgotten and all their knowledge just goes into the ether. So I spend an awful lot of time finding these old timers or these patterns that I think are unique and I interview them and I try to really get not just like, here's the pattern, but like, let's tie it together or show me the subtle nuances that you do that makes this pattern fish correctly. Cause I know I've got little tricks that I do that make flies look great. And there's flies that fish great. And the, the little tricks that make flies fish great are the ones that are the first to be forgotten because no one really passes that information along. So so much of what I do with my books is, yeah, I'm going to put three or four of my bugs in there, but everything else is somebody else. And I want to not only highlight them and their pattern, but also talk a little about why they did it and what was their thought process and has the pattern evolved or how do you fish it or, you know, what were the challenges that you were trying to overcome? Really get to the roots of why they developed the pattern, how they did it and and talk about the story and how it's changed and what the pattern is now versus what it used to be. Yeah, I love that. So who in your studies so far has been, in your opinion, the most underrated fly tire? 
unequivocally Steve Bailey. So Steve Bailey. I'd like to use this opportunity to hear all about him. Yeah, I hear you. Here we go. Sit down, grab a glass of wine. (laughs) Um, Steve Bailey was the guy that tied all of um, lefties flies for books. He, he is probably um, like you said, the most underrated, underrated fly tire of all time for saltwater. I mean, when you talk about surgical accuracy, um, this guy measures everything with a ruler. He's the one that really um, took me from here to here. And um, I didn't know it, but he lives, um, when I moved here, he lived about three blocks, five blocks from me. And I was, um, he worked at the post office for, I don't know how many, 20, 30 years or something, but he commercially tied and he guided as well. And he's just really humble and really quiet. And he does not want to be put on display or... Um, you know, he's not an attention guy at all. So I had to drag, drag it out of him, but like he willingly shared everything with me. I mean, I have hours of recordings of him where I'd say, Hey, Steve, you mind if I record this? And he'd tell stories with left about lefty and flip and Bob and the old days and tying flies when they, you know, invented the, the Clouser, which was Bob's versus the Clouser, which is how flip ties it. But Steve tied all flips flies like when he was doing it. So I got really lucky when I was really getting into it. And so many people said, you got to meet this guy. Like he's the OG. And he just kind of took me under his wing and said, you know, you're here and you're going to be here. And he passed the torch to me and was like, I'm done. I'm going to give you this all, all this information. And I mean, it's, some of his stuff is just like mind blowing technical, like, okay, we're counting thread wraps and we're measuring and, you know, every feather has to be two and three quarters from the hook shank or from the, you know, from the bend of the hook. I mean, he's just his level of detail um, to make his proportions the way they are and completely the same on a hundred flies really made me kind of the way I am. The other one is, um, was my, 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 my first mentor was Eric Leiser and Eric was really big in the trout world. Um, he wrote, I don't know how many books I have, probably 10 of them. Um, but he came into one of the classes when I was teaching at Bass Pro when I first got started teaching kids and he kind of shuffled in and sat down and he was already probably in his late seventies, early eighties. And he just watched me and he said, Hey, you probably don't know who I am. And he dropped a book down and it was the, the Bible here. His, uh, which one was it? He has the, this complete book of fly tying by Eric Leiser. Um, and he said, I brought this for you. I signed it. Let's tie fly sometime, you know? And he lived across the river from me in Cape Coral. And I would go pick him up. His wife would let him come over to the house and play for a while. And, you know, he'd teach me all kinds of crazy stuff. And he helped me get um, feather brain off the ground. Like a lot of the stuff in that he was, 
um, helping me become a writer. Like he was way more influential um, in in my career um, with becoming an author and how to do it and how to how to. He would say, "I know you have a picture there, but don't look at the picture. And if if I didn't have the picture, could you explain how?" to tie this fly, what step you're doing or what technique you're doing or how to hold the hook or what fingers to use without seeing the picture. And that's how I started writing the step-by-steps the way I do is because of Eric. Oh, that's a really good point. That's super cool. Yeah. I mean, back, back in those days, I mean, you look at like some of the old books and all the, the how-to is all illustrations, you know, they're not pictures. So he had someone draw what he was doing. And then he was a a much more articulate, you know, guy. And he, I mean, he could just tell the story with words. He was very eloquent, um, real wordsmith. So he did his best to pass it on to me, but I'm still kind of a knuckle dragger when it comes to, you know, being an eloquent writer. (laughs) You'll get, how old are you? I am 43. I just turned 43 on July 3rd. You've got lots of time. Uh, What about your opinion of the most overrated fly tying material? That's a loaded one, April. I know. I I don't know. Um, Overrated fly tying material. I I think um, a lot of people put an awful lot of faith in synthetics. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for natural materials and the way they move and their UV reactivity and, um, you know, the way they shed water and they're just lifelike. Most feathers or fur, especially like coyote, you know, it has four or five different tones. It's not just monochromatic. It's like, if you look at a coyote tail, the there might be some cream in there. There's some black tips. There's some white, depending on where you cut it from. But, you know, it looks more realistic and lifelike. Where if, if you said, hey, I'm going to use a, a natural coyote or a, um, a synthetic coyote, like the, the stuff they call crafter coyote, it's tan with a black tip. I mean, you can very easily see like, okay, this does not look natural when you compare the two and I I think that there's a lot to be said for the textural elements, um, whether it's the coarseness of a hair or fur versus a, a very uniform synthetic. So I would say synthetics are the most overrated and I try not to use those unless, um, there's really not another option or they serve a very specific, um, function. Like if you're tying a McFly foam crab and you, that McFly foam, when you trim it, um, it makes a very bulbous kind of shell, which, which is very hard to do with other materials. Like, yeah, that's, that's great. You know, I can, I can create a shape with this material. For the most part, I try to use naturals never possible. Yep. Yep. Same. I gotcha. What about controversial fly? Is there a fly that you've come across over your time or throughout your time that you have realized is extremely controversial, whether it be at the time it was invented or now? Oh yeah. It, it, my wife laughs a lot of times when I'm writing these articles and I'll, 
I'll write a how-to or, you know, I, might, I write this monthly newsletter called the Salty Fly Time Chronicle. I just, I'm writing number 120 right now. This this is like the the line of demarcation for 10 years for me. So, um, and every once in a while, I stumble on to a powder keg inadvertently. You know, you kick a, a hornet's nest where you're like, you didn't create that. That's my fly in 1974. I can prove it. You know, like, geez, here we go. You know, crazy Charlie or, you know, the there. I mean, I, I hate to even say ones now where everyone's still alive because it just tears the scab off it again. You know, like I was interviewing some kid about the strong arm crab when it first came out and man was that one bad when i you know i got a call from like everybody you know everybody in the keys called me at once it's like that's not his fly you know it's nathaniel's you know like okay <laughs> you know, i didn't know man i mean i just i gotta write this newsletter it's a monkey on my back so you know you you find out really quickly that there's you know, a lot of times people come to the same conclusion at the same time in different parts of the world. And there's nothing you can do about it. You know, we're a hell of a long ways from Australia, but you and I could both see a new material that comes out like, like those dragon tails, like everybody saw those coming or, you know, this this kind of rubber leg or you know this type of foam or something and then everyone says oh i'll start experimenting with this and i'm gonna make a shrimp or i'm gonna make a crab and everyone ultimately ends up at the same spot because there's only let's say five techniques you can use for this material and there's you know if we're gonna mix this material with this style hook or this and you're trying to create a crab everything's gonna look pretty similar so i I just get to the point now where you're like, listen, we're all just trying to make it a better world for people catching fish, man. Like, let's just have a cocktail. Just relax. It gets <laughs> around the bonfire. It gets hot. We'll talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> you yeah. know? No, on. it does. It gets hot fast. I've been there before while trying to interview people or write articles. But let's talk about people who are gone then. I don't know if you've ever read about Waddington, Richard Waddington, but you know the Waddington Shanks? I don't. Nope. You've never heard of the Waddington shanks, you know, when you tie, uh, you ever seen those shanks back in the day before, I think Fish Skull or someone came out with shanks afterwards, but for a while there, the only shanks that you could really find were Waddington shanks. And it's from different okay. Richard Waddington. And I can't remember if he was early 1900s or late 1800s, but books say that he was the first person to develop a 360 degree profile fly. Because obviously back then they had a lot of, uh, you know, feather wing, even hair, hair wing uh, flies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing salmon stuff. Yeah, salmon stuff. And he was re- highly, heavily okay. criticized for developing a 360 degree fly, which is, of course, something that has been adopted and a lot, most of us use. But um, I didn't know if you'd ever come across something like that, that looking back now is so stupid. My- but at the time it was really highly frowned upon. My favorite is the argument of when is a fly not a fly. Yes, that's actually one of my questions for you. Yeah. So um, my mentor, Eric Leiser, um, who was, you know, 
adamant about using natural materials and he was a salmon kayer, like a trout guy. So he did like all kinds of natural little stuff. But um, when he got into saltwater, um, he had some very strong opinions about what could be done and what couldn't be done. And we were at this fly tying meeting. It was like a Sanibel fly fisher meetings. Uh, and somebody was presenting and they, they brought up the Clouser minnow and he yelled out from the back of the room, it's got lead on it. It's a jig. That's not a fly. And like <laughs> this, like chaos ensued, like 80 year old men yelling at each other, you know, like I was like, oh, this is, this is fantastic. <laughs> like, I didn't know they had that much in them, but like it, it got, it got heated quick, you know, but like, yeah, that one's a fly, not a fly. Like that's a lure or that's, you know, if you, if you mold it, you know, it's on a hook. Is that a fly because you're throwing a fly rod? So I don't know. Um, again, I'm maybe I'm just kind of at the kumbaya place where I'm like, can't we all just get along? You know, like, yeah, but um, do you have an opinion on I it? I don't know. Do you, I'm uh, very curious if you have an opinion on it deep down beyond the kumbaya. I, I think, I think that everybody needs to be able to look themselves in the, look themselves in the mirror and be happy with what they've created and how they enjoy the sport. Right. So like for me, like I, I really enjoy catching fish on the flies that I tie. And sometimes it's so pig headed that I won't catch a fish because they're like, here, use this. And I'm like, no, like I need to catch it on mine. You know, and they're like, why? You know, if we're catching them like crazy, I'm like, well, I'm kind of writing books about my flies. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I want to see if I can do it on one of mine. And if I can't, then I'll fix it or I'll come up with something new. But I, I want to do it the hard way, I guess. You know, like I, I can do it. One of those little kid mindset, you know, and you have four year olds, you know, like, come on, let me show you how to tie your shoes. And it's like an hour later, like, no, I can do it, you know. But, um, I don't know if there's any, I mean, I'm, I'm not down with spraying gulp on flies. You know, I've seen guys do that. For me, that's kind of sacrilege. But at the same time, I'm the first one that I'll smell a fly. And if I smell head cement or glue, I'll dig a hole in the sand and I'll take, you know, six inches deep in that mud and get that muck and I'll put the fly in the muck and I'll squeeze it and get it in the fibers and I'll smell it until it's gone. Cause I, I think permit can smell stuff like that. So what's the difference, right? Like people argue with me that like, well, you changed the smell of the fly, but I was like, well, I use natural. Well, you know, I know a lot of guys that will be like, Oh, well, I'm just going to rest this fly in the bait bucket, <laughs> you know, like, okay. You know, now we're splitting hairs, right? Like you can use mud, but I can't use dead bait, Ooh. you know, like. Well, I don't know because that's where on. I draw the line is with scent as well. And I will say though, because you could though get away without using a really smelly epoxy, right? You could just, your fly wouldn't last as long, but you don't necessarily have to use that stuff. Right. So I don't know. I'm going to draw the line at the bait bucket, depending on how desperate I, yeah, I am for to catch sure. I- <laughs> For me, it's like, hey, I'm removing scent. I'm not adding scent. Yeah. You know, like if I can smell something that I've done wrong, 
not only will I not do that again, like painted eyes or something, or if I have a client with me that's done something and like, Hey, I got these custom tied flies and you open the box and you're like, it melts your eyebrows. Cause you can smell like the, the, you know, the heart is hull or whatever the, the Sally Hansen on them. You're like, okay, maybe we better back your commercial tire down a little bit here. But yeah, when's a fly, not a fly. <sighs> I don't know if if you made it and you know it's you can cast it with a fly rod. I, I don't know. You know it's. Are you enjoying it? Are you having a good time? Okay, good, great. You know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cast any dispersions. You you do you, I'll do me. Watch your own bobber. I tell my daughter all the time when she tries to tell people what to do. I tell her watch your own bobber. <laughs> That's good. What about UV? What are your thoughts on UV? As far as if it's, I love if it's effective, can you tell me a little bit about the science and your experience with it? Oh, you're saying UV reactivity versus UV. I thought you were talking about UV glues. I'm like, solar is messed up on oh, um, but I don't no. have experience with any of it. So tell me where your mind's at with it. So UV acrylic, you know, in the last 10 years has really kind of changed the game for me. When I was really commercially tying, epoxy was the bane of my existence because you would spend this... I mean, it seemed like a month worth of your life creating this couple thousand dollar selection of flies for a specific location and they're leaving on Friday kind of thing. And then the nail biting would come for me as like, okay, now I got to epoxy them all in. And dear God, I can't tell you how many times it didn't harden and it was tacky. And you were like, oh, there's no way I can tie them over again. So now I got to like get a lighter out or I got to get a heat gun and see if I can cure it. Or now I got to repaint them all with Sally or, you know, what if I hit them with UV and now they're kind of soft cured, you know, they're, you know, it's like thin ice. They're hard on the outside and gummy in the middle. So like UV acrylic, um, I jumped onto that train with both feet versus head cement one because I'm very low on brain cells as is from tying flies for years with all the chemicals. Um, so I got to save what I got left. But um, two, the the whole process of not knowing if you've mixed uh, the, the, the two parts right and then put them on an epoxy wheel and then they drip on the other flies or you glue two together, it's just a debacle. So the idea of being able to shoot it and have it cured immediately and have that like satisfaction of, okay, this one's fine. That was, I was all in on that. Um, UV reactivity on the other hand versus UV reflectivity. Um, I also believe a lot in that too. Um, when I wrote feather brain, I did an awful lot of research on, you know, can fish see in the UV spectrum and, um, I think the most interesting part was this little chart here that fish can see UV color 600 times further than visible light. So especially they tested like, like salmon fry and those fish that don't really have developed cones and rods and things like that in their eyes, they're seeing UV color much like an insect sees um, a UV reflection like a beetle to like find a mate or a bird that's got really bright plumage. And when you start looking at the color spectrum from light to dark, like this, this here shows the highest UV activity 
or reflectivity rather is the lighter colors when it goes to black it's, there's almost no uv reflectivity and brighter colors like chartreuse and and hot pink and neon orange those are uv reactivity because they've been dyed and the, they're reacting to the uv light but the feathers are actually reflecting uv light so when you think about like all those um like peacock eyes or um, the jungle cock eyes where they're like, they're using those as eyes because the fish key in on the eyes of bait fish and they reflect. And I strongly believe that, that, you know, feathers do the same thing. You know, if birds can see in that spectrum and insects, I mean, obviously we can't, but man, I can't tell you how many times you put on uh, something old school, like feathers and out fishes, uh, uh, super cool bait fish pattern tied out of realistic synthetic. And you're like, Oh man, that looks just like a bait fish. And I put on this feathered, you know, seducer deceiver and smoke you every time because it just, they're seeing something else. How did you, Uh, I love this stuff. How did you do your research for that? For the book? You know, when I, when I started, when I, when I pitched Jay Nichols, I remember telling him I want it to be kind of a cross between Alton Brown's Good Eats and um, Bill Nye, the science guy. Like, I want to go to the scientific side of why we do flies and explain it the way Alton Brown explains cooking. You know, make it fun. I don't know if you know who Alton Brown is, but he's like, if I had a super group of dudes I could hang out with, he, he would be in it. Um, he, he really kind of took, um, recipes and other, like the cooking side of things and made it understandable to people that wanted to be food geeks, you know, like here's the scientific, um, why gluten is this, or this, this flour works for bread versus, um, why you wouldn't use this high gluten flour for pasta or vice versa. You know, it's just a super deep dive, um, way beyond what you would think. And I remember a lot of my friends looked at the manuscript that I was going to send them and they're like, no one's going to read this, Drew. This is, this is like way too deep. Like you have gone, people are going to think you're, you're smoking dope all the time or something like this is like, people don't want to read this, but uh, apparently they did. You know, a lot of people want to know why did you use that feather? Why did you pick that color versus, you know, why is chartreuse good versus black, you know, black silhouettes and can be seen in the middle of the day so much better than, you know, on a dark day, you use chartreuse because it has a higher UV reactivity. It can be seen six times, 600 times further when there's no visible light. So why am I choosing these flies for this scenario or this color water or, you know, this particular fish, you know, like walleye can see chartreuse better than any other color or, you know, the red is the first color that disappears when you go into depth, you know, when you're scuba diving. So it just, I, I, as I started to peel back the layers, I mean, you want to talk about going down the rabbit hole. I just found this, like this piles of information on my desk that just kept getting more and more and more and then trying to tie it in. Like, how do I now process this and, and tie it all together? And at the time when I wrote this, 
um, I had shut down the mortgage and I was consulting. So a lot of the process that I used, um, you know, it's kind of funny was, you know, I was talking to other supply chain logistics consultants who are fishermen and they're like, you know, it would be interesting. Like if you use like a chloropleth map or like some other tool. So like a lot of like this chart, like I had to find a, uh, like a hierarchy software to figure out how to say, okay, here's what a fish is eating. How do I emulate that? Like, and then how do I pick out what materials to use based on what I'm emulating for a specific movement or a specific shape or appearance, you know, where in the water column is the, the thing I'm trying to represent being eaten and how do I make the fly stay there and look the way it is. What is that chart? Would you mind showing me again? Yeah, it's, um, it's what I, when I first start the book, it's my, what are they eating and where are they eating it? And, um, it kind of talks about what you're trying to emulate and how to pick materials to do that. So if you don't have feather brain, I'll send you a copy. Um, but it's one of those, like people see this and, it's funny that the guys from Vagabond Fly took both these charts and they changed this heading to um, Black Woolly Booger and all all arrows just pointed to Black Woolly Booger. So they're like, yep, that's all good, Drew, but just put on the Black Woolly Booger, you know? <laughs> so like, yeah, I get it. It's, it's some people are like, okay, you know, it's a little too deep of a dive for me, but... Do you have what hey, what was nerd, yeah. what was the nerdiest or wackiest philosophy or theory that you had that you um well th- that you either published or that you left out? Was there something that was just so crazy? Yeah. Um I went way beyond um where I thought it was going to be and I called every manufacturer. And I was annoyed at the fact that um if you wanted a dumbbell eye and someone said, what size is it? And I was like, well, it depends on who makes it because if it's a hairline, it's a medium. If it's a spirit river, it's a five thirty seconds. If it's a Wapsi, it could be a micro or they all had different sizes and different ways of measuring. And there was no matrix that compared it all. So I called every manufacturer in the industry and I, um, I got them all. I got every eyeball manufactured and then I built a spreadsheet and I got a gram scale and a micrometer and I measured every eyeball that was manufactured. And then I, um, put it into uh, a spreadsheet and I, I, I basically made them all uniform. So there was a chart where you could say, here's, here's what a medium eye is in any manufacturer. And that was absolutely insane. Once I started and I was like 10, 12 hours in, I was like, you are a dumbass. <laughs> like this was a terrible idea, Drew, but like it's done and it's it's really cool. I mean, this this these three pages of measurements, you could say, okay, I need 
painted black eyes, and a large is 5.5 millimeters. The actual diameter of the eye is 5.2. Um, the actual uh, diameter of the eye in inches is 1783rds. It's a lead eye. It, gram weight is 1.34 grams, which is 120th of an ounce, and it's manufactured by Hairline. So you could go through any one and look it up and be like, okay, and then say, go through and say, all right, so this is 120th of an ounce. What else is 120th of an ounce that I could use? Oh, here's a, a plain painted eye in the size medium, which is 4.8 millimeters um, that's done by Wopsy. Is that in February? So, yes. No, that's in my big books through Wild River Press. This is 10 years worth of my work. Wow, um, what a book. That is, these three. Wow, it's huge. It's beautiful. These three books, um, they're a set. Bone, it's Top Saltwater Flies, uh, Bonefish, Tarpon, and Permit. And these three represent 10 years of my life. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so e e each one is very specific. Um Jim Klug donated the photos for the headers. So, I mean, it is, I, I told um, Tom Piero that I would only do it if I could do them hardcovers and I could do them spiral bound like cookbooks because I want them to lay flat because I was so sick of all my other books having like mash them down or yes. put like a the vice base on them to keep them open. <laughs> so like all, all these will lay flat and it's all like my photography for the flies and step by steps, but I mean they're they're like coffee table books. They're but, amazing. Do you yeah. sell those on your site? Um, these are all sold through topsaltwaterflies.com. Um, if you go to my site, they're on there, and when you click on it, the link brings you over to that site. But um, top saltwaterflies bonefish is kind of the first in the series, and and they they go. Um, in order, bonefish, tarpon, permit, permit being the most complicated. So there's a lot of technique in bonefish. Like if you said, okay, I'm going to start with one and you were going to read it cover to cover, um, one, you need to take a lot of naps because it's not really that riveting. But um, the vast majority of the, you know, the beginning, I don't know, 30 pages is is mostly like how to put on weed guards. Here's a single versus a double or, you know, how to paint lead eyes or a, a lot of the stuff that just didn't fit anywhere else. Like that I wanted to get out there that everybody asks about that they don't really fit in the, like fly tying books, but like that's, if you said, Hey, I want you to teach a master class on fly tying, saltwater fly <laughs> I tying. I do, by the way, I'm going to talk to you about that after, but continue. Yes. <laughs> the, these these three books represent my master class. Like if I've talked to a lot of like schools, they're like, "Hey, we want to do a fly tying course." Here it is, two hundred and fifty bucks. You're done with those. You can go anywhere on planet Earth, tie your own flies, um, catch whatever fish you want in salt water. But it's in there, and there's a a ton of information, and not only from me, it's from everybody that I've been helped and encouraged by along the way that shared tips and tricks. I mean, it's the unfettered version of everything I know is in there. I love it. I love it. Wow. You are a serious resource. <laughs> You've just devoted your whole life to it. I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. That's for sure. You know, I, I, 
I keep saying to myself, at what point you're like, I got nothing left to say, you know, like every month. That's what I'm wondering. What, when are you going to run out of ideas? Every month I say to myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to come up with another newsletter. When I started, I had um, my first newsletter had eight followers, two of which were my parents. Um, you know, and you're like, no one's going to read this crap. You know, like I, I wasn't a writer and I was, and I just give away a free step-by-step every month on my website. Uh, and that's what I want, saltyflytime.com. That's what I wanted to do is just kind of share the knowledge because part of the reason Eric took me under his wing, he said, listen, I'll, I'll teach you everything I know, but you got to promise no secret, share it, give it, put it out there. So that's what I've been doing. So I said, all right, fine. I'll write a newsletter and I'll do it every month. And like I said, this is month 120. I've never missed a month. From the day he said that to me, I started. And on the first, sometimes the second, depends on, you know, how bad I am trying to get it out. But um, I haven't missed a month yet. And this is 120. And this month will be the Bahama Mama. Um, But I get to the point, I'm like, I think I've done them all. You know, if, if somebody's got to fly, please, if you're listening, call me. I'll interview you. We'll do it because, I mean, I am running out of ideas. And somehow, magically, uh, whether it's divine intervention or uh, destiny or whatever, I just somehow magically stumble onto a fly in a step-by-step or someone calls me out of the blue or like, hey, I just did an interview with April. And April's got a bonefish fly for Belize. So I'm like, here, quick. So fill in the interview questions. I'll write it up and take pictures, you know, but I don't know. I don't know when you say, you know what, like that's enough's enough. If you can't tie flies by now, play golf, you know, like I, I don't know. I guess when I stop enjoying it. Well, that's exactly right. I'm going to go back to your website because I did, I was on your website before we started rolling Yeah. and I totally just out of, because I was in a hurry to get to you, I X'd out of the the pop-up, but I'm going to go back and I will subscribe to your newsletter for sure. Yeah. I mean, and the archive is really, um, again, the last 10 years, every, every month there's a step-by-step with very detailed instructions. And a lot of people are like, man, you could have tied that fly with 10 steps and you did it in 25. But like, listen, if you can do it in, in 10 steps, do it. But so many people can't. You know, that's the hardest part is the frustration. When you sit down and you watch a YouTube video, like, oh, that guy makes it look really easy. And then you try to do it and it's like a cat threw up on the hook. And you're like, how did I get here? Like, where did I go wrong? And a lot of it is paying attention to the position of the materials and the the thread on the vise at each stage. So I really break it down and I put way too many pictures, but like, I've been there. I I have had that frustration and I've taught kids an awful lot and I know how fast they move on to something else. And if you want to keep them interested, they got to have 100% confidence and be successful right out of the box. It's got to work and look like what you did because if it doesn't, they're done. They get frustrated and mad. So my, my books are all written you know, with twice as many pictures as you probably need, but there's there's definitely no questions left out there. Like when you read it, you're like, okay, I get it, Drew. We're moving the thread over here, you know? Yep, I love it. All right, so where can people find you these days? Most active on Instagram. Um, 
I don't do a whole lot with Facebook anymore. I, you know, I'm not on Snapchat or TikTok or anything like that. I'm just, I'm kind of an old curmudgeon. I landed on Instagram and that might be as far as I go unless something comes along or my daughter gets a little bit older when I let her have social media and she nudges me along. But I, I, I'm on Insta most of the time. I do fly time reels every couple of weeks. I'll put up a, a bug with some ridiculous music from the nineties that I thought was cool. Um, but, um, yeah, so that or saltyflytime.com is my website where they have, you can buy all my books there. Um, I sell some hard to find materials. I've got some vices. I've got some free eBooks too. Um, you know, all the newsletters are free obviously, but, um, all my books, um, are available via ebook and, um, hardcover and paperback with the exception of Featherbrain and top saltwater flies, um, which are sold through other publishers that kind of handle the fulfillment and things, but all my books, you can say, Hey, you know, like I would recommend getting them on eBooks. Um, not only do I not have to go to the post office, but you can zoom in, you know, you can put them on your phone, you can put them on your, um, your tablet or your, your computer. And when you're somewhere sitting in a lodge in the middle of nowhere, Caribbean or the Bahamas or Belize or wherever you can zoom in and say, okay, here's how you tie that fly. And they're always with you. So, um, I put them all in a Dropbox folder and, you know, if I were you and I was into fly tying, I would do that. And then you always have all your patterns with you all the time. I look at I like them a style. lot on you the don't plane. Need to, you don't need to squash them down. It's perfect. That's it. Yeah, I got an awful lot of books behind me, but the 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 best one is the one you got with you all the time. Totally agree. Well, I will link all of this up. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been long overdue. Yeah, this has been great. I really appreciate you thinking about it. Thinking about me, have me on. I'm, I'm honored. Well, likewise. Um, all right, I will link all this up. Stay tuned and um, thank you again. 